In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Lord of mercy, Lord of mercy, Lord of mercy. In the name of the Lord, Father, please give the blessing. May God have compassion upon us and bless us. May he show the light of his countenance upon us and be merciful unto us. Amen. 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 God is glorious in his saints. Welcome to another conversational episode presented by Generative Sounds, Paradosis Pavilion, and St. Demetrius Press. My name is James John Marks, coming to you from the city of Chicago. With me once again is Father Simeon Keys in Iowa City. And joining us for the first time is my comboro and dear friend, Nicholas Pappas, joining us from Houston. This is the first time in longer than I can remember the three of us have had the opportunity to talk all together. And I want to express my gratitude to you both for making the time, as well as my excitement for our conversation today. Listeners may recall Father Simeon and I caught up last week on the recent events in his life and the impact that that has had on our media collaborations before we got into our discussion about the poetry of St. Ephraim the Syrian. So before we begin to address the primary focus of our conversation today, I'd like to make sure our audience knows who Nick Pappas is. Father Simeon, would you like to give a biography of Nick or should we make him talk about himself? <laughs> well, I guess I could do it. I mean, for our first hour, we will talk about... Uh, Talk about Nick, but uh, I, I'll have to tell a story. I mean, I was assigned to a parish in Pennsylvania when I was at uh, St. Econ Seminary, and in that parish, it was full of icons from Nick, from f floor to ceiling and all the way around you. It was three three sixty. So, um, I have I have worshipped in a space and and received training in a space full of, of Nick's icons. And he's been doing this. He can correct me about this, but I think uh, he, he's been doing this um, for a long time and uh, received his training in the U.S. and some training in Athens as well. And I would he probably has, let's see, um, over 50 parishes probably, something like that, maybe his icons and I would I would imagine over a hundred houses have your icons as well, and he's also written uh, about iconography. But something about Nick too is that he has made beautiful iconography for churches and iconography that adorns homes and beyond painted icons, especially through Saint Demetrius Press, the icons that you can. It can buy uh, from Nick that are in many homes and bookstores and churches and, and everything else. Nick, as an artist, has placed his work in places that you would think would be secular space. And I like to think of it as the, the spiritual realm peeking in to a world that is not aware of the spirituality that is all around, like the depth of reality that is there. And uh, that's something that I love about uh, Nick's art. It, it brings together these two things. We talk about icons as being uh, windows to heaven. And, and, and it's almost become kind of a catchphrase, which is trademark it, whoever said it first. You know, uh, what, is, what does that mean? But I think uh, Nick's art really uh, being placed in, in certain places, even outside of churches, is about uh, not people just seeing the spirituality, but helping people to realize that the spirituality is looking at them. <laughs> and I and I love that. So I could say more, 
But uh, Nick can talk more about himself if he wants to talk about it. But this, he's uh, he's a great iconographer and uh, and an and an artist, and I love hearing his insights about his work. Thanks, Father. Well, I guess it's kind of like the three of us of mutual admiration club, which is nice for for men in as Christians to give each other support. Uh, in a world that uh, is fallen and can tear men down, you know. So I've appreciated the friendship uh, and the fatherliness from you, Father, and my friendship with Jim, which um, dovetails uh, a lot with what you were talking about, the, the, the work that I've done that kind of uh, bursts out of the kind of the normal parameters of being within a church uh, that has a lot to do uh, in the last 10 12 years with my friendship with Jim which you know has been I don't know just layers and layers of blessings and growth and uh, expansion of myself and uh, most specific to this conversation with the with my art you know Jim and I started doing these collaborative, efforts together which kind of popped and pushed me into the direction of doing what we've come to call exoliturgical art which kind of uh, was partially informed by my uh, work as an artist in college and then, well all through my life really but that was largely abandoned uh, once I took on the vocation as an iconographer but come, came back to it and was able to use that for uh, a voice that was kind of different, you know, and hopefully uh, very positive. And so, yeah, a lot, a lot of the credit goes to, to Jim for that. Um, and to you, Father, for the blessing to kind of, to do that kind of work. I call the one work that I think that you're especially thinking of, which was done for uh, St. Arnold's Brewery here in Houston, uh, which I approach with probably a little too much fear, uh, unholy fear, <laughs> um, uh, has ended up being, uh, a, from the feedback that I've gotten, has been a huge blessing. I call, I've called it my Gideon Bible icon, and uh, not everyone will understand the reference, but there's the, uh, the Gideon Bible Society will put their uh, copies of the Bible in hotel bedroom drawers on the outside chance that maybe one in a million people or one in a thousand people, whatever, we don't know, might read it and be touched. And uh, uh, that's that was my Gideon Bible approach to this. And I've been overjoyed to learn from feedback that it, it was not in vain. And so that's a lovely affirmation. Um, so, yeah, as far as any other thing, I like to give credit to my teachers in Athens. You mentioned Nicholas and Basil Lepera of uh, uh, Blessed Memory and uh, my priest and teacher when I was in college, uh, Father John, who became Archbishop Job, again of Blessed Memory. And... Uh, 
I had this one, you know, I was always a devotee of Constantine Eusis, whose work is just all over the country. And, uh, it, you know, among Orthodox Christians, I mean, it's a small circle, but he's pretty well known. And uh, I grew up with his icons and was always inspired by them for a lot of different reasons. And I was blessed to be able to meet him in person. And I kind of, I guess if I had to describe it, it was like a mini master's class <laughs> over the course of an afternoon. Uh, you know, he uh, he's a blessed memory also at this point. But if you were to ask him if he even remembered me, I don't know. But I, of course, remember that afternoon vividly and took away some very powerful uh, things that have informed my iconography since then. But uh, yeah, we, I could go on and on, but that's a few things in a nutshell. Well, just to prepare everybody for the rest of the conversation, uh, that was an example of Nick talking about himself. He spent the whole time talking about other people. Thanks for sharing yourself with us, Nick. Uh, and thanks to both of you again for making time for the conversation today. I am struggling to express how excited I am about this. Um, I should take the time here before we dive into our topic to say that this week on the Christian Saints podcast, we are remembering Saints Barsanufius the Great and John the Prophet, whose feast day is the 6th of February. We are taking inspiration from the extensive written correspondence between these two monks as the premise for our conversation today in the broad sense that it is good to make time for fellowship and conversation, uh, as Nick said, especially for men who uh, need to support each other, which is something that I think uh, our Orthodox community, at least in the United States, is becoming more aware of. Um, I would like to start us off with a quote that I found from one of the letters attributed to St. Barsanufius. Uh, I think it'll set an excellent tone for our conversation. Uh, the translation uh, of this was, was done by Father Seraphim Rose uh, and was included in a book of these letters that he put together, which was published under the title Guidance Towards Spiritual Life. And the quote is this, Emmanuel is interpreted God with us. And so test yourselves whether in truth God be with us. If we have removed ourselves from evils and become strangers to their inventor, the devil, then in truth God is with us. And if the sweetness of evil deeds has become bitter to us and we take enjoyment of the desire for good deeds and of having forever a dwelling in the heavens, then in truth God is with us. If we look on all men alike, and if all days, sorrowful and successful, are equal to us, then in truth God is with us. If we love those who hate us, who insult, reproach, despise, oppress, and cause us detriment, just like those who love us, praise us, furnish us gain, and give us repose, then in truth God is with us. The sign of one who has attained to this measure is this, that such a man always has God with him, for he is always with God. If he is not with God, and God is not with him, then of necessity he will have the adversary with him. And from this, the rest is clear for those who have intelligence. Without further veiled reference, the focus of our conversation today will be around what has become an unintentional theme of the Christian Saints podcast, which is taking on the likeness of Christ by walking in the way of the life of faithfulness. I've noticed as I've worked on my episodes each week that doing so has had an impact on me compared to when I was merely supporting Dr. Darren with musical compositions or before there was a podcast at all. Having to look metaphorically into the likeness of Christ each week as we find it manifested in each of the saints featured in the episodes is changing me. It's changing how I go about my days. 
it has been a challenge so far to grow the audience. And I've been surprised to realize that on the whole, I don't particularly care for now. Uh, because it, it is doing me good to spend time each week on this project. And it's certainly a better way of spending my time than what I might otherwise be doing, given my own lack of discipline. And so realizing this, it occurred to me that I wanted to have a conversation with Nick about literally looking into the likeness of Christ most days of his adult life, both in icons of Christ himself and also in the images of the forefathers, prophets, apostles, and saints. And it also occurred to me that this might be a conversation which would be edifying to share with others, which is what gave rise to the idea for this episode. And given that Father Simeon is a priest and is caught up in the liturgical calendar from the point of view of services and homilies, it seemed fitting to get his perspective as well, as he is also looking at the saints so regularly. So who wants to break the ice? I'll start. You know, when you uh, presented this theme, uh, I just started keeping a couple of scant notes of things that it made me think of. And right off the bat, I remember, you know, uh, I, 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 you know, I, I had to look back because it's been four decades plus of doing this. And uh, I can remember first starting off painting the faces of saints and being in front of them. Being kind of oblivious, I think, was more maybe because I was a young man, a young father, uh, distracted. It was more work for me. I always took it seriously, and uh, uh, I, I don't want to be flippant or about it, but it just there was a, an edge to it that I don't think I was quite paying attention. You know that oh, I'm right in front of the saint. I'm. And portraying this saint, it was uh, not to a great degree. I didn't really feel that. Um, but apparently, some things, you know, that's the one of the mysteries of icons. I, you know, that I, I, sometimes I, I say to people, you know, well, they put an icon in their home and they're a non-believer or you know, somewhat of a believer, and I semi-joke, well, you know, that's you're playing with fire. <laughs> Just to have it there with you, and uh, so there they were, just with me. And uh, uh, there was a, a a point at which that I think it caught up, and you know, people call it your midlife crisis or whatever. And I think that to describe whatever it was that I went through, it's maybe a little easier for many people because I would say it's something along the line of, of what a lot of people experienced as the, the COVID experience, you know, the isolation and the being alone with your own thoughts. And I think that might have been more of a factor than, uh, you know, it's just the, the side effect of the vocation of, of, of painting icons is that, you know, the alone time in a studio, almost like a monastic cell, I guess. And uh, so you're alone with your own thoughts. And so, uh, I think that was more of what brought out any kind of awareness uh, was uh, a side effect of, of being in front of them uh, and having, you know, with the COVID experience, you have either people growing from it by looking inside or going crazy, sometimes literally. And um, I went at one point in my life, I would say that's what happened to me. I did the crazy and I was, but this is where the saints really come in, in the sense that I had 
what were saints to me. Uh, mostly, you know, foremost, of course, my wife, and then I had a counselor, uh, Bishop John Abdallah. Uh, they were right in the the trenches and helping me out, but the rest of my family. And then I think maybe it gives a more uh, as it, it's the invisible uh, saints praying for me all of this time. You know, my patron Saint Nicholas. Never met him. But you get a sense that he's always been praying for me since my childhood. And so it's kind of really uh, uh, a backwards kind of thing. But it, it's interesting because then it, it, it makes a lot of sense then when you see how people can react so violently to icons. When on the one hand, they're saying, well, they're nothing. On the other hand, uh, around the world throughout time, when they, when people who uh, are anti-Christian, they come into the church and the first thing they do is gouge their eyes out of the icons because they're looking at me. <laughs> and, like, well, what are you afraid of somebody looking at you? You know, it's it's on them. There's something in their heart that they don't want to be looked at. And you hear these stories in the Orthodox world of thieves that will steal an icon and they'll give it back because they were looking at me. <laughs> and uh, so that that gaze, you know, from, from the saints uh, depicting or reflecting or expressing the gaze that comes from God really is, is a powerful fire. It makes me think of one of my favorite feasts, uh, Transfiguration, and the, the the great line from the song or Trapart of the Transfiguration that uh, the apostles were, that were there could see it only in as much as they could bear, or bear it. You know, and for some of them, these are the apostles, and they're getting in the icon they're depicted as tumbling down the hill. You know barely able to handle it right it's too much and uh so in in my own you know human way i, I think i've experienced to, to some degree some of that not by any virtue but just by virtue of spending all that time in front of them and the the virtue of the gift that icons are to us i would say i would give credit of course to god for all of this a quick two cents um, on what you said right near the end there uh, about it having nothing to do with your own virtue. That is one of the things I've become increasingly aware of as I work on these episodes is like, who on earth am I to be doing this? Like, I'm, <laughs> why am I, you know, writing podcasts about saints and attempting to extract lessons from their lives and presenting that to people I've never met? I mean, I have, I have no credentials that make that a valid thing to do in any way. And that's a thing I've become increasingly aware of as this process has gone on of my own unworthiness of the project. This is good. I'm just, I'm waiting for more. I would, I would say for me, icons really have three aspects of our our connection to them 
in time. And with regard to the past, we are remembering those who have gone before us, who really knew God with their hearts. And when we see the icons, we see really the history of humanity. And that stream of that story that is the, the healing and the redemption of humanity. And also that's our family because we are part of that redemption being within the church. And the icons that portray events also help us to see those times in history that have led up to where we are. And, and we are part of all of that. So there's really something about orthodoxy and, and remembering. And in fact, there is a connection between remembering and truth. Uh, forgetting is about forgetting who God is. And if we forget who God is, we forget who we are because we are, are in God's image and we have been created to be in his likeness. So it all falls apart if we forget. And we can see even in our culture this forgetting. First, first the forgetting is, is noetic, right? It's the, a forgetting of God and that we don't experience God anymore. And then we still have this rational kind of memory of the story of the Bible. But without that experience, uh, or trying to experience the experience of those in the Bible, right? <laughs> from which God uh, has given us the scripture, through which God has revealed himself, without that experience, then we forget the relevance of that story. I mean, it just becomes something that is is more and more distant. And so we can see that the, the forgetting of even the the story as as this rational uh, narrative in in our culture uh, that we've we've forgotten. So that's there's something about the past that reminds us of who we are and who we have been as a people, right? As as the people of God, and then the present. You know, here we are looking at an icon, and we are with the saints, and they they are with us. And when we worship, that's, that's amazing that the saints and the angels are here and they are, are with us. And we are in this process of becoming like them, even becoming their friends. That's what we really want. We want to be so much like the saints that we become their friends. And they're, they're praying with us and for us now. They are praying for us that we will be like them. And that's, that is also powerful. That's, um, a lot of what we'll probably talk about here. I mean, it's our present experience with icons in the present. And then there is this sense of, they tell us what the future is like. And that is when we see the saints, we, we see what the kingdom of God is and what will be in its fullness. And as we are becoming like them, God willing, our hope in the future is to really be like them and with them. So when we see an icon with the present, this is interesting. I mean, we we really do have this sense and we see 
the face of a saint, this this discontinuity and this disconnection from who they are now and who we are. And I think of this story of St. Mary of Egypt who lived this, this life of sin and finds herself in front of an icon of the Virgin Mary and, and talking to the Virgin Mary through this icon and saying it's, you know, you who are pure, you know, look, look at me who am impure. You know, me, I'm a sinner and you, I've heard, brought forth the one who came to save sinners. You know, there's this, this present discontinuity and yet the, it, it really gives us hope of who we can be. I, and for, for me as a, as a parent, I see those icons and my role as a parent is to bring them into the stream of the spiritual life so they know who Christ is, they know who the saints are by experience so that they too, whether an icon is ever made of them uh, or not, uh, with their, their image and likeness, that they become uh, in the image and likeness of Christ, which is what it means to be, you know, in the image and likeness of the saints. I'm glad you brought up time. Uh, it was an embarrassingly long amount of time for me when I first started attending Orthodox services before I realized when the deacon or the priest goes around and senses the whole space, it took me a while to really pay attention and see, okay, they're sensing the people. And then I thought for a while, oh, they're sensing the walls. And it's like, no, they're sensing the icons. And eventually I sort of got it that, well, they're people too. <laughs> they're just sensing all the people. And yeah, some of them are physically here and some of them are invisibly here, but we're all like, my church is being lifted up into the actual present moment, which is the presence of God. You know, we have this difficulty in the material world of defining what the present is. It's not because you can't shave material time fine enough to really say what right now is, because as you're saying it, it's already the past. And so I've, I've come to understand that the present is the point where where the eternity of God touches human experience. That's the present. And that's what church is all the time. And so we are being lifted during that sensing and at other points in the service into the eternal worship of God with these other people who are more alive than we are. Uh, you know, to us, they look like a painting on the wall, but they're, they're more real than we are. And we're being taken to where they are all the time. Uh, and that's what's going on there. And it, I was really embarrassed when I finally figured that out of like, that took me, you know, three and a half years to, to, to grasp that. Um, and where that really came home for me, and, and both of you will remember this, when, when St. George Parish in Houston was expanding and they took the walls off and there were things that had to be covered for safety reasons. After a couple of weeks or months of that, my wife grabbed my arm one day during services I'm sorry, I might cry. Um, she grabbed my arm and she said, I miss Joachim and Anna. Because they had had to be covered. They were way up high and they were near the edges. And so they had to be covered so that the paintings weren't damaged. And for her, that created this sense that they weren't there in a really real way. And it's interesting, my, my wife's middle name is Joe. And, and we sort of realized 
years later, she probably should have taken Joachim as her patron. But uh, uh, that, you know, was a strange connection to make. And so it didn't occur to everybody right away. But uh, she has a real devotion to, to the two of them. And that experience of going through them being sort of removed uh, and, and the visceral impact that had on her really brought home for me why we put icons in churches and what's really going on when we do that. It, again, it was embarrassing when I, when all that finally connected for me, I was like, Oh, you know, I tend to think of myself as a smart guy, but that was pretty obvious to take, to take this many years to get it. Beautiful. No, there was a uh, thing that you, when you started talking about remembering being connected to truth, father, um, I have, I was at a, a memorial service this last week, and it was in a Pentecostal church. And, you know, when you have been to an Orthodox funeral and then go to a Pentecostal memorial service, it's a stark, stark difference. And, uh, you know, it's not making any kind of judgment about other Christians, but it's undeniable there's quite a difference right, in the, those prayers or services. And, uh, you know, I talked to some people. I, was, I, I tried to remember there's a word of uh, uh, advice from a contemporary saint, I think. I don't remember who, but it's more or less uh, if you're an Orthodox Christian in, in the United States or in the West, you should be neither an aggressive, uh, aggressive nor passive. Just be yourself. So I try to remember that when I'm interacting, especially here in Texas, um, with uh, other Christians who don't know anything about orthodoxy. And uh, you know, you you two especially would know the cliches of the kinds of uh, opinions and ideas and false understanding people have about the orthodox that maybe come from. Texas or the South or just the American Christian experience. But one of the things I just kept thinking over and over again while I'm in this memorial service is, how did this happen? Like, I have in my head the visual of the, the tree of the timeline of Christian history, which has the trunk, which just begins to splinter and separate and separate to the point where I don't think they, we know the numbers now. And when I moved to Texas, I remember to Houston, I remember seeing coming from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, that, I, oh, this is what that tree looks like. Because there's a church beside a church, beside a church, and across the street, another church beside a church, beside a church. And maybe they talk to each other. Maybe, they, I don't know. I don't know. And But that's... Again, how did that happen? And so it's just a kind of a wonderful serendipity, Father, that you brought that up because that's kind of where I was going. Like somehow they're they they're not remembering. I, except I think it's maybe worse because it's they don't. There's nothing to have forgotten. You know, it's gotten it's you're you're you know hundreds of years down the line from a split, and uh, they don't even have a clue as to. Uh, what they have, have forgotten because it didn't have it. Somebody else forgot 
but now you're a generation or two or three or whatever and it's just it's this thing that I'm looking at that has some scant remnant of orthodoxy uh, but it's it's a meditation that I guess uh, I don't know on the one hand it's very upsetting to me and the other I guess when you have those kinds of things you just have to uh, trust in God's grace and mercy uh, with all those kinds of things and, but yeah that was amazing that you brought that up the connection to truth and remembering as far as, as how it maybe impacts the, the conversation about icons well they certainly have forgotten my, <laughs> have gotten away from that memory you know uh, and that's complex too how did that happen throughout history and time in the history of the church that's for uh, ecclesiastical scholars I guess well and that's a compound problem too because you forget about icons and then you forget the things the icons are there to help you remember and, oh this is you remind me of the other thing that was very uh, down to earth because there was a fellow there I'm, you know devout in his faith I'm sure and he was asking the, the one of the guest celebrants was a, an Episcopal priest and so he asked him what's the difference between you and me and uh, uh, they were talking and at one point he uh, really got upset talking about Mary and saying but she's dead you know she's dead we don't talk to her there's only one that rose from the dead and I'm like wow that's like the, where do you even start <laughs> you know and like, you know, going back to what Jim was saying, you know, these are people more alive than us. And, you know, um, but it, you know, I mean, it's one of those things in a practical world when you want to share the good news that Jesus rose from the dead and, and, and everyone you love, too, and all these saints that we see on the walls, that they're all being pulled from the depths of hell and will be alive as well. And to think, oh, they're just dead. I mean, wow, I, it's uh, I, sad in a way, coming from a Christian, someone that says to be their Christian. But uh, yeah, that was my experience this last week. But it does, I guess it, part of what makes it shocking is, again, being around icons for so much. And that loops back to father as his job as a parent it's a great blessing to bring your kids to church and have them see icons and see that saints are there and they can be experienced. You read their stories, hear their songs, see see that other people love them so much that they commissioned these icons and someone learned how to do this and they got put on the wall, you know, by the virtue of this community and through history and through learning that here we are, we, we love these people. And they love us. Uh, um, yeah, I think in the end it just becomes a sad thing when the, when they that's either forgotten or not understood. And kids get it. I mean, kids can intuitively understand icons, and it, it's uh, fascinating how complicated adults make things. 
You know, that's and it, it's just like, as I said, the identification of icons as windows to heaven. Someone will say, well, what, what does this mean? And the, it, they want this rational uh, sort of systematic explanation of what icons are and what they are not. And if someone says to me, I'm, you know, I, I don't really understand the place of icons in the spiritual life. Well, how do you how do you learn to ride a bike? I mean, it was like reading a book on the mechanics of riding a bike and never getting on one, right? Or how do you learn if you were shy to be a a conversationalist? I mean, just really by putting yourself in that situation and kind of talking to people. And uh, I mean, the way we learn what icons are and what they are for is to just stand in front of one and be, and talk to who you're looking at. Not, not talk to the piece of wood, but talk to the one depicted. And if someone says to me in the same way, like, I don't know what to do with the, uh, with the Virgin Mary and how she fits into this, someone from a Protestant background. Interestingly, those that come from no religious experience, just don't have that baggage, but some do. Uh, and uh, the answer is put up an icon of the Virgin Mary and just start talking to her. And even we can begin with prayers that are written to her, right? To, to pray to a saint is actually to ask a saint for their prayers, for us, intercessory prayers, to the one mediator, right? So pick up, I mean, the text of, of the uh, Agathos or the or the uh, Paraclesis or just something, uh, if you'd like to start that way, or you can ju just just talk to her, and uh, that's that's really how we learn to pray. You learn to pray by by praying, right? By by experience, and and icons can be uh, so helpful. It's it's going back to this uh, and just childlikeness, and and uh, you know we we're always we're always rationally. Uh, complicating things, but but icons are there, and I, I always say that the the things that I talk about in the spiritual life are very simple, and that's true of of catechumens. I'm, I speak about the basics of the spiritual life: humility, obedience, compassion, prayer, repentance. These very basic things. Those are very basic things. But I'm I'm in a very well educated town with a university here. And what do the well-educated people need? The very same thing. Because those basic things are also the most advanced. Right? We, we, we spend our whole life trying to master the basic things. If we do that, we're saints. <laughs> and we, we, can, we can just delude ourselves and do uh, that we need to read, you know, philosophical texts or something um, in between because we think we're smart and educated and we should. But sometimes those things just just get in the way. And and icons, they are part of this simplicity of the spiritual life, and that they are there, right in front of us, and they help us to talk to the saints, to ask for their intercessions, and to, and to and to sense since they're present and, and most importantly to uh to sense the presence of the one who is the arch 
prototype, right? Uh, Christ himself through through the icon. You're bringing up, I think, one of my favorite things, <laughs> which is uh, the child within, Father. And that, you know, when that uh, everyone loves that, uh, who are familiar with scripture, love the, the scene of Christ saying, let the children come to me. And uh, in icons, we have beautiful icons of that with the uh, the child on Christ's lap, and it's almost romantic and sweet. But there's this part to that that is kind of unsung and maybe unknown by the that the audience is not all kids, and the ears that that message is meant for is, I believe, the adults. And why would he be saying that to the adults? Because he wants the child within those adults to be the one to come, which is why what you're saying, you know, this, this, the basics, the simple stuff, uh, being taught to the ones who are well-educated is the stuff that they need and this, but really the stuff we all need, but that's, that's where, uh, it, that's where we encounter these saints. That's where we encounter God, when we're the child coming to sit on Christ's lap. And then, and it relates to icons, absolutely, because what do kids do? They draw, right? And they, they, uh, they, they have these primordial expressions, creative expressions, going along singing, making up songs and singing in the bathtub or whatever, you know, scribbling with crayons, those are things that we associate with children, right? And uh, so, yeah, I think you really struck a chord there, Father. It makes a lot of sense and connects absolutely with the faces and the icons and, way, and the way to connect with them, to, you know, not, not have that prejudice that someone gave you somewhere along the line, you know, like about marrying the saints, or to come to it fresh, you know, like a child. And it don't be such a hurdle at all. It just occurred to me that the cure for childishness is childlikeness. It's, it's not immaturity, it's vulnerable trust. Yes, amen, amen, amen. <laughs> right, and you know, it's it's amazing being, being childlike. There's, <laughs> we're always dealing with our uh, childhood in some sense, right? And that's and that's sometimes a desire to return to the positive aspects of that and the and the dealing with the trauma of the negative aspects of that, all of that. right? but but uh, but this this spiritual sense of being childlike, it it is uh, a w- without without the mind getting in the way, this simple trust and 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 hope and and wonder at the mystery without thinking on oh, I'm going to wonder at the mystery. Just just doing it and interact interacting with with things um, of the spiritual life without um, even knowing why, right? I, I, sometimes complicated questions even that people have. Theological questions. They can receive the it, the answers to those questions, or at least the piece about those questions, 
in the heart, right? In the, in, in the spiritual mind, they may never get a rational answer they could write down on paper or put like in an apologetics book or something, right? But what happens is as we mature in the spiritual life, which is becoming really more childlike spiritually, the more mature we get, we just have different questions. And, and I think about the simplicity my own kids in a church, you, you have an icon, you say, kiss Jesus. They just, they kiss Jesus. Like, uh, one of my kids, maybe more than one, would go down a line of pews and, uh, and just kiss the crosses at the, at like the end of each pew. It's just kind of like built into venerating things. Once we were doing uh, Vespers and, and uh, my little guy decided while wearing a very bright shirt and I think shoes that light up to just walk as I was chanting, walk across the Salea <laughs> to the other side and look up at this giant mosaic of the resurrection, you know. Um, I mean, children are comfortable in that space. They, they seem to sense uh, the presence of the saints and of Christ and the angels. And uh, may we be more like them. And, and, and I'll say even, even catechism books, it's interesting. Some of my favorite catechism books are our children's books. And, and, and the truth, people want to understand the story of the Bible. Get a children's book that follows the story of the Bible. You know, it's just this simplicity. But there's a difference between education for the rational mind and the heart. And that's really what the icons are there they, uh, for, uh, really, is that they, they train our hearts to pray. The parish where, where my wife and I are at the moment here in Chicago is drowning in children. <laughs> I mean, we, we just had our annual meeting a few weeks ago, and I think a quorum for the annual meeting of members was something like 60 people. But on a given Sunday morning, there are over 200 bodies in the nave. It's just the overwhelming majority of them are under 12. <laughs> and there's a tenacity that these kids have when they've been taught, okay, when you come into church, you know, you kiss the icons that are on the stands, you light your candle, you put it in the sand. And the ones that are far too short to do that will climb the stand in order to kiss the icon because their older sibling can do it from the ground and they're not going to be left out. They will climb. I mean, there are weeks where some of us have to stand next to the thing to make sure it doesn't fall over while all the kids climb it to kiss the icon. You know, they're that determined to be close to these relationships, to be a part of what's going on, to, to, as you said, they know there, you can see it in, the ferocity of their determination to not be left out. That it isn't just, oh, I want to fit in. You know, I think people from the outside might look at it and see that, but no, it's, they know there's something there and they want it. And they're not going to, they're not going to let being two foot six get in the way of, of being a part of what's going on. Uh, and it's really beautiful. I mean, it's, our parish is beyond chaotic. Um, but it's such a different chaos than parishes I've seen that are full of adults who just misbehave. <laughs> you know, I can deal with a hundred eight-year-olds who are just being eight-year-olds. That's that's beautiful and joyful. And uh, but uh, it is 
it's been really different to go from sort of a big city parish to a small neighborhood parish and and how different that vibe is. And a big part of it has been just how many kids we have. Um, I've had a thousand thoughts piling up while you guys were both talking and I've probably forgotten half of them at this point, but... That leaves 500. We've been talking about remembering and forgetting and images and, and people in, in other faith traditions. And I think all of us are old, the three of us I think are old enough to remember I'm not sure if it was precious moments or something that was just very much like that. Back in the 70s, there were these very sentimental drawings of children that often had um, Christian or at least pseudo-Christian ideas attached to them. And I remember seeing so many of them when I was a kid and being a little shocked that like they often had on shirts, but no pants and there'd be boys and girls and they'd be in and like, and, but so, you know, we've been talking about what it is to be childlike instead of being childish. And there's a level on which those kind of images like kind of have that really spot on of there's kind of an Adam and Eve, they were naked and didn't know it, innocence going on. And, you know, you might see this at the beach sometimes where there's just a kid that's just like, it's hot and I'm wet, so I'm going to take everything off and run around. And everybody laughs. Nobody gets embarrassed. Nobody gets offended. Nobody's scandalized. It's just funny. You know, and then you hit an age where at some point you realize, oh, I shouldn't do that. Um, And there's a way in which that's kind of sad that we reach an age where we're like being outside in the hot sun and in a pool, I shouldn't be naked. Like, that's actually just kind of sad. I think that's a, a huge reminder of of what our fallen nature really is is there there's nothing more wonderful than being out in the hot sun and in a pool naked that's great you know but we've we've created a world for ourselves where we decide we shouldn't do that and that's just kind of sad father you uh made me think of something when you're talking about your kids and icons you know i don't know how it happened as i think it started somehow organically somewhere along the lines in our family, uh, whenever we would say prayers and you, uh, as Orthodox, you kiss your icons after your prayers. And then we started including kissing the icons, meaning our family members as icons. You know, and uh, it goes way back to when Jim was having her his revelation that, you know, when the, the deacon or the priest is sensing around the church, he's sensing all the icons, meaning the ones on the walls and the ones that are standing there in church, you know, your brothers and sisters in church there that day. Uh, but that's a, a, a very uh, down-to-earth, practical, um, seamless a manifestation of the seamless between the invisible and the real world that helps us all not, you know, helps us to be childlike, whether we're grown up or small, which makes me think of the other thing I was going to say, which is how there's this huge fiction that comes in our minds that when we're looking at the package of another person that's 20, 40, 80, 90 years old, that there isn't the child there in there somewhere. And um, in icons, we have that. It's it's a very quiet, but bold and powerful uh, part of iconography. And you see it in two very specific places. And one is in the nativity icon. 
And the other and the most powerful one to me is in the Dormition icon. The depiction of, of that child within, of the soul, of the thing that only God knows, the one that the the thing that in Revelation gets the name that only <laughs> who, uh, gets in a sense figuratively or a real in a real way whispered in her ear by God Himself, the name that's yours that you don't even know, right? And so that's the that's the visual thing we have to put our hang our hat on as as Orthodox Christians is that soul the Christ coming and embracing the soul of his mother like a child in a sense uh, the the flip the inverse or the the the, um, the turning on her, on our head and on the universe's head of what she did for him she had that baby in her arms and now he in the eternal cradles her soul like uh, with the equivalent or greater gentleness and love but then even more mind-blowing that this is the icon the image the story that that soul that child that beauty that love that caress that that uh, Abraham's bosom coddling is you and I our soul our child within that's given to us as a possibility you know through faith we mentioned at the beginning uh, some of the artwork that that you've done that isn't strictly speaking icons that are meant to be put in churches and this this idea that you were just articulating that's something you brought into your other paintings at this point quite a few of them it's kind of become a bit of a series did you want to talk about that at all as well sort of literalizing that for people in a visual way and maybe how that has shaped your relationships with those people Oh, well, yeah. Um, I have done, you know, I don't know, I can't count, not probably not a dozen, but literal portraits, painted portraits. And I don't know where I picked it up, but I, uh, from the first one I did, I did one of my wife many years ago now, and I depicted her as a young woman, a child, a kid, and the woman that of the time when I painted it. And so that became kind of the trope that I have embraced as an artist who has also <laughs> part of my experience uh, being an iconographer, that this, yeah, that the, the child and the adult are the, 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 at the same time. And it's really a wisp of, uh, a nod to that idea of the what is really captured in a very sublime and practically perfect way in the Dormition icon, you know. So, um, but yeah, I guess it's a it's a nod towards that direction, absolutely. A theme that really comes to mind and, and prominent in so much of what we're talking about <clears throat> is this physicality of worship, a physicality of the spiritual life, and. Um, it's, I mean, in the icons of the of the uh, nativity, of course, it's the incarnation, right? The one uh, who who creates matter without change, becoming matter, and then in the Dormition, you have the soul of the Virgin Mary there, and yet her body. And uh, this reminds me also of kids because 
kids, they love lighting candles and kissing icons and, and prostrations. I mean, <laughs> kids love prostrations with all that energy. They're a lot more flexible than we are, yeah. That's, that's true, that's true. And the iconography, of course, is, is this physical aspect of the spiritual life because we believe that the spiritual and physical are together, right? As, as in the resurrection body, right? So, and that goes back to the incarnation again of, of the God-man. And uh, this relates really to Pentecostalism too, because certainly there can be this separation um, in how people live and this spiritual life. But at the same time, uh, there are certain aspects of uh, the life that includes uh, like laying on of hands, right? And anointing with oil, washing feet, things like that, you know, in, in some congregations, certainly when a tambourine is involved, right? There's physicality to worship in some congregations. Um, and so there's something there and there's almost this, this, uh, this point of contact with orthodoxy because with people that are in a certain stream of like apostolic or, or Pentecostal uh, communities, they can understand the laying on of hands and anointing with oil and this sort of thing. Uh, they, and, and that perhaps can be a way of, of helping them really understand also the role of iconography for us, you know. But uh, that's an aspect of the, of the Orthodox spiritual life that that I, I, I really appreciate and think that it's one of those things that um, brings people into a place of kind of, you know, in, inner sort of integration. Uh, and that is the way we live in the body really is connected to the spiritual life of soul. And they're, and they're inseparable sort of things. And through, through things like venerating icons or, or doing prostrations, you know, we, we're bringing our body along our spiritual therapy to heal the soul. And, and, and being like Christ, right, is not about this just ethical sort of being like Christ, but it really is, it's about transfiguration, right? That we, we, we radiate with Christ's glory. We're so full of the power of God, and it, that, which is his presence, that we love with divine love. We have divine humility, right? We, he is working through us and, and allowing us to become that which is really beyond our human nature on its own, right? And uh, that, that, that's manifest and, and, and we see that in the icons with the, the saints, you know, with these halos of, of light. Uh, but our, our salvation is physical and being, being like the saints, being like Christ is this transformation. And, and as we go back to the story of Christ's transfiguration, it was the transfiguration of his, of his body, right? So we, it's, it's really inescapable. And it's, it's part of this evangelism, uh, this message of, of what Christ has, has done for us, this integration of our person, soul and body to be, to be saved, to be healed, to be uh, transfigured. Our, our culture is, is suffering from two delusions that, that run hard against what you just said. There's, there's the deeply Gnostic stream in our culture that 
reifies the soul into a thing, which it, it, it isn't. It's the life of God within us, you know, uh, a, a contra to the body. And so instead of thinking of a, a human person as a body which has been made a living spirit by God giving it a soul or giving it soul, uh, you know, we think of the body is kind of like this spacesuit that has a soul in it, you know, and that the real us is the soul and that's the Gnostic problem. And then the, the other problem our culture has is, is we've psychologized everything. And so my consciousness, my inner monologue, my stream of thoughts and my emotional state are more real than my body. And I mean, we see that now going to a really extreme form and I don't want to get political, but we, I mean, it's kind of gone to its final end result with that. And the orthodox perspective on anthropology is very much the opposite of both of those. It's no, you're, you're mostly your body. You know, your, your emotions are, are temporary. Your, you know, your, your, the thoughts coming into your head are not yours. They come from outside of you and are mostly delusion that you should be ignoring. And, you know, ignoring the body over the soul is, is a good way to die early. Yeah. And, and, and orthodoxy is very much about, disciplining the body as training for disciplining those other things because they are lesser but more complicated you know if you can't do prostrations if you can't fast how on earth are you going to control the thoughts that come into your head and how on earth are you is your is the life force within you going to be prepared to return to god you know if you can't just skip a cheeseburger on a wednesday and uh, well i would add like okay the two two directions that uh, lockdown. Uh, I I don't know. I can't speak for everybody. I, maybe statisticians can give us uh, what what it has done to people. I think it's still unfolding and will unfold for maybe a generation or more. But um, I, I was making the conjecture that it was you either go crazy or you you go inside and discover you know, the universe within, you know, which for a Christian means you find Christ inside of yourself. But uh, uh, as is joked about many creatives and many artists, the, that line between insanity and genius uh, is so indistinguishable sometimes and just a razor's edge. And uh, yeah, I think that you, you could almost call that a third, a third option. It's been interesting for me. I I very deliberately avoided social media for for a very long time. I first got online in 1992, which whenever I say that to certain people, especially people that were born after 1992, they don't believe you uh, that it even existed at that time. But um, And so I'd largely already seen the toxicity that those kinds of spaces could bring long before the mainstream of our culture did any of it. I was already over it when everybody else was discovering it. And when it went mainstream, it became clear like, okay, this is only going to get worse. It's not going to get better. And I very much walked away from it. Being a part of the podcast and, and having to promote it requires being, being in these spaces. And Nick, you brought up earlier, you know, when we interact with people from other traditions, don't be aggressive, don't be passive, be yourself. That's that has been a huge challenge to pick the opportunities where it looks like a a carefully given word might bear fruit versus starting an argument. It's, it's a challenge. Um, but I bring all that up to say, um, 
it's become really clear and and it's a little depressing actually in in some spaces where you can interact with a lot of orthodox people that that lockdown for a lot of people you know we talked about childhood trauma and different things for some people it is clear that fears that were born for them very early that they've never dealt with got unlocked and are now just running their life and whether they are or aren't in the traditions that we're in when somebody is spouting something that just sounds hateful or insane or even just maybe wrong it's so difficult to remember and it's why i love the paintings that you've done nick it has helped me sometimes to when i'm in my right mind to to look at what's going on and say that's not them that's their pain you know that's not them talking that's a little kid inside waving a wooden sword desperately trying not to get killed by a ghost <laughs> and to try to find a way to to have conversations where you can say look fear not you know it's it's going to be okay god loves you and his church has survived an awful lot of things that are far worse than this thing you're yelling about right now and it's it's going to be okay and i don't always do a particularly good job of it it's, it's something i'm working working on but um so much of what we've talked about today you know it's all wrapped up in i mean at the end of the day icons are a relationship they're people as we've said they're alive we're alive we're you know it's in the same way that a soldier carries a picture of his wife when he goes off to war and he kisses it you know and that, that nobody questions that it doesn't occur to anybody like why would you do that that seems completely natural and normal to us and in the same way you know we have this massive family who are with us all the time and love us and care about us and and are in the presence of god praying for us and in that moment as you said of not being passive not being aggressive being ourselves ourselves is not me it's our it's the plural <laughs> what we have to to bring and engage people in is here is this giant choir of saints who want to help you meet God. And there are enough of them that whatever image or path or metaphor or story you need to make that happen, there is at least one, if not dozens, that will resonate if you take the time to, to get to know them. Um, you know, we talked about people defacing icons and there's so much anger in the world, especially online, about religion, both from within religion and outside of religion. And the more I see people talk about the things they hate about religion, the more that it's clear the thing they're mostly angry about is that they want it to be true and they haven't found the, the way to engage it that heals them instead of making things worse. It's not that they genuinely believe in a materialistic universe because if you say to them well if you really believe in a purely materialistic universe you can't say that religion is making the world worse because there's no such thing as worse worse doesn't exist right like the only coherent version of materialism is nihilism which is i can do whatever i want because i'm i'm an accidental ball of electricity and chemicals and you might not exist so i can you know i can do whatever i want to you because you're in my head and when you start to talk to people that way, they get really upset 
they they don't really want to believe that. They want to act like there's a version of materialism that still lets them tell me what to do because they want to be safe from me. They're afraid of me because they're afraid of everybody. These images that we have and these stories that we have about these lives and the, especially the hymns and, and the texts that are in the Senexaria with their, with their puns and their wordplay and their humor and their joy. Yeah, I mean, so many troparia start with you, the lovers of the feast, you know, and it's, that is such an evocative phrase, uh, you know, and some English translation is like, you know, we, we feast lovers, you know, it's just like, boy, that's a t-shirt, isn't it? Like feast lover which would be so misunderstood in our world, but uh, it's what we, it's what people need. We need to all become lovers of the feasts. You're making me think of, uh, you know, uh, you're making me think of how we, how, you know, spread the news. How do you reach people? And I've been thinking about that a lot lately, even before this encounter at this memorial service about, um, how far it really goes, it kind of maybe a mental exercise that when we're encountering anybody, you know, the, the bagger at the grocery store or, or closest friends and family, that it, 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 I guess, requires some imagination. I don't know about picturing it, but just to remember that on, on the one hand, you're talking to that child within. And on the other hand, you're talking to the the casing that has experienced all the life that a 20-year-old, 40-year-old, 60-year-old has experienced, which is a lot. And a lot of it may be injurious and maybe wounds that are scarred over or wounds that are still open inside, uh, you know, some that are infested and infected and we don't we don't know we don't know people's stories you know it's kind of a classic line but so but if we remember that there's that that huggable soul within it lays a foundation for how do we interact with people and that's on the one level and on the other end of the scale is well I, there's a lot of work to talk with anybody if they have 60 years, 40 years worth of thoughts and education and life experience and trauma and joys that have gone into making their them who they are. And to unpack that, you know, that's, uh, you have even people that are willing and wanting to become Christian going through catechism, just full of questions, full of questions. They're open. But they got the questions. And like Father Joseph Honeycutt said recently, he goes, well, one of the things that kind of indicates that you, quote unquote, become orthodox, I guess, is, is you start becoming comfortable without having all the answers. <laughs> you know, so that, that those, those walls and those shells of that 20, 40, 60 year old have scaled away, you know, peeled away to the degree so that that child within you begin to get away from the childishness like that father said and get more more intimate and closer to the childlikeness one of my proofs that god exists um i had to wait 
the better part of 15 years to, to come into the Orthodox Church. I first wanted I first wanted to and first started looking to figure out how to do that in 1996. And it didn't happen until 2009. Um, and that was, as it turns out, by God's grace, because who I was uh, in 1996, it would have been a disaster if I actually started attending parishes because I would have been one of those people with questions. And not only would I have had questions, I would have argued about the answers. And by 2009, I was able to come to the church and by God's absolutely by God's grace, not any insight of my own, have the sudden realization, if this is going to work, anything I don't understand or don't like or react negatively to has to be my problem, not a problem with the church because it's this or nothing at this point in my life. And so if there's something that I find confusing or something that I think is wrong, that means there's something wrong with me that needs fixing, not something with the church that needs fixing. And over these now, uh, I guess almost 15 years that I've been in the church, I've seen time and again, where as a younger man, there were things that I would have wrestled with in a negative way rather than wrestling with in a positive way that that insight in that moment of this has to be about changing me, not about changing the institution I'm trying to become a part of was all the difference between it being successful and it being not. And I'm a person who's prone to despair uh, pretty significantly and always have been. And the Orthodox spiritual life um, is hard and I'm not, again, as I've said before, I'm not a particularly disciplined person. And so my progress is very slow. Uh, I have a running joke with, I think every priest I've ever confessed with, which is, well, you know, I'm back and you already know what I'm gonna say. Cause it's the same thing I said the last time I was here. Cause you know, I, I do the same things all the time. And, and yet, as Nick said, you know, you, when we have these opportunities to interact with people in, in other traditions, um, my wife's grandmother passed away about a year and a half ago and we went to her funeral and her side of the family uh, are all very Pentecostal as well. And there was a point in the middle of that funeral where I realized I was having a visceral physical reaction because no one had said the word resurrection and we'd been sitting there for 45 minutes and I was going to freak out if somebody didn't say it. And that like that that being the theme of a funeral had become so normal to me in, in all the different Orthodox funerals that I've been a part of, uh, both as a chanter or just as someone attending, that being at something that was being called a funeral where that much time had gone by and it hadn't been said was painful. And that was at least for me, a realization of okay, like some of this is sinking in. You know, I am getting somewhere with what I'm trying to do that at least I'm at a point where my idea about what death is is completely different than what my idea of death was 15 years ago. The funeral service actually is a good example of how in the church we balance on the one hand the stark reality of who we are and of the hope and 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 who we can be and what God has done, right? So in, in the funeral, 
we do not cover over how bad death is and the effects of physical death, what happens to the body in the grave. And we acknowledge the reality of, of mourning. We, we re literally sing about it. Yes, yes. And yet, uh, we, we, we talk about the hope of, of the resurrection. We talk about the future. That is not over, right? This, a body in the ground for us is, is full of potentiality, right? And the, the best question, I would say really the theological question as we enter into the theological training of the church, that is the main question, is, is or one of the questions, is what is wrong with me? And not what is wrong with us as human beings, but really specifically, what is wrong with me? And how do I, how do I heal? What do I have to do to participate in the salvation already accomplished by God so I can be among the saints? And, and, and the spiritual life is about this reality of who we are. As we go into, into Lent, that is a focus, right? That's, it's, it's uh, what is my diagnosis? And, uh, and Lent really gives us, I mean, helps us engage in that therapeutic spiritual life, train us really for the, our entire lives and for the, for the rest of the year about what it means to be honest and uh, aware of our sins and, and repent, right? Turning away from our sins. And we balance this, this self-honesty with God's love. Like we're always looking at the hope of the resurrection. We're always rec recognizing and remember God is the good God who loves mankind. He's the one who is compassionate. He's the one who's merciful. He's the one who wants to forgive. He's just waiting for us to respond to the forgiveness he wants, wants to give us. And I think part of the fear that we have in our culture is really a fear of humility. We have a fear of humility. We have a fear of, of, of obedience. Uh, and it, because we have to sacrifice our ego to, to, in order to do that. Um, but that's something about the church. It reminds us that our, our job is recognizing our sins. And yet there's no place for despair in that. Right? It, I mean, it's not about having low self-esteem so we can become, you know, kind of this, this mat with no value, you know, just laying there. That's not what it's about at all. It's about, ironically, the more humble we become, the more present God is, right? When we are down in the pit, God is there. And that is the place that we ascend to the heights of heaven. And, and God, is, God is with us and, and able to do something <laughs> in, the, in the sense that we are giving him permission through our humility. Uh, we are open to, uh, to God uh, imprinting himself on our hearts as, as a seal is, is imprinted in clay or in, 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 in soft wax, rather. So um, we hold all of these things really together. And we see in the icons, and along with the stories of the saints in the icons, this humility, the icon of the crucifixion, Christ's humility, and in that, the defeat of death. And we see in the stories of the saints, the, uh, the fasting and the prayer and the faith, even unto death through martyrdom. And we see them depicted in glory, radiating with God's 
grace and his love and his peace, all of these things. And, uh, you know, orthodoxy really holds a lot of things together and integrates them that in our world, sometimes people think are, are, are opposites or, or intention. And yet in the mystery, they come together, like within uh, the Virgin Mary, virginity and motherhood agree, right? These things come to come together in this in this mystery. And, and that's something else that the, the icons really uh, show us. You know, the, the icons are there really, right, to, to, to teach us these things and not often, you know, as a book does, but they, they, they teach our hearts by how they express truth. That, that makes me think that's beautiful that, you know, like the things that we can miss, you know, that Jim was saying right there in front of his eyes for years before he realized, oh, those saints and us were, were in it together. And then you're bringing up the, 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 the most obvious icon in our churches, you know, Mary and the baby saying to us over and over again, oh, a virgin gave birth. Uh, like getting hit over the head with it without getting hit over the head with it. You know, another paradox. But kind of just waiting patiently for us to absorb that, those opposites. The cross and resurrection, virgin and birth, saints alive but dead, dead but alive. You know, uh, and and Christ depicted Christ depicted as a as a child and yet with a a mature face sometimes. Well, I hate to say it, we could do this all day. I was waiting to see when you were going to cut this off. At some point, episodes do have to come to an end. But uh, given that it's the three of us, I think we would be very much remiss if there was one story that we did not take the time to talk about, and that's Reader Lucian, blessed memory, um, who Father Simeon uh, knew very well, better than, than I think either Nick or myself, uh, and that Nick uh, was very gracious enough to, to render for, for myself and for his family and for everyone uh, on an icon. We haven't put the Nimbus on it yet. God willing, someday it will be there, but um, maybe we should take a couple minutes and talk about CL. Well, I didn't know him really like you you did because I went to a different parish. You know, I, I sang with him, I think, a couple times at a chanter stand. And uh, you just kind of, I don't know, sometimes you get an aura from somebody, uh, which I did from him. Of course, he was unique. You know, he stood out in a crowd because he was a black man in, in a sea of mostly white uh, Orthodox Christians, which... It's its own glorious thing, you know. We're seeing more and more of that in the Orthodox world, but uh, uh, it, it's it's stark and wonderful. Uh, but uh, I was delighted to be able to have the honor of doing that iconographic portrait, learning more about him through through you, Jim, and. Uh, we'll see, you know, like the, it is a mystery how these things really, they get revealed to us by God's grace as far as the sanctity of the people that God chooses to have us remember in that way and know about in that way. So the time will tell. 
There was a time in my life I was very anxious about making sure other people knew about him and his life and and what he had accomplished in his life. And I mean, as you said, it, it, it's up to God. And I've reached a point now where I'm much more comfortable with the idea that if if only the handful of people that I know who knew him, who have been a part of sort of this process, if we're the only ones who are touched, that's enough. You know, it would be wonderful if, if, if you know, he became a part of the calendar of the saints, that would be amazing. But what the way in which his life has changed me and affected me is enough. He was a man who was a, a servant of the church. And if, if nobody knows about him outside of the circle who did, I think he would be okay with that, right? He, uh, and uh, I think that it reminds me of something I've been saying recently, and that is we have great saints in the church who are important to some of us that in our archdiocese, the, the saints do not rank very highly. Their feasts do not rank very highly. So sometimes you don't hear about them in the services, like St. Genevieve of Paris or St. Patrick or, or St. Bridget or St. Nina of Georgia. You may not really hear about them. And uh, in, in other parts of the world, that's not true. In other parts of the world, right, the, the feasts rank very highly. But uh, they sometimes, sometimes saints, even, even saints that their feasts do rank highly, because of a major feast of the Lord, let's say, that is on their feast day, their, um, their mention is, is, is nothing. Even, even saints that, that we would consider to be higher ranked in their, in their veneration, right? Um, and, and those saints would be okay with that. I mean, those, <laughs> those, those saints are okay with being overshadowed by a feast of, of the Lord of the Theotokos or one of their fellow saints. I mean, that's, that's uh, a sign of, of their, their humility, right? And, I, and uh, going, going back to uh, C.L., Reader Lucian, uh, he was, um, you know, rel a relatively quiet man who, who read in the church, right? And who, who worshiped in the church. And uh, some people, for some people, they might not have known him at all. But uh, it, it, for for what we know about him, you know, and who he was, uh, sometimes we just we, you know, hold on to those things, right? And uh, it, it's um, that's how it is about uh, you know a lot of people that are just just faithful uh, faithful people. You know, they have their their Christian walk and they and they affect other people and and who they affect by who they are is um, is a gift and you know we receive that gift I, I think we can sum all that up you know we've talked about remembering and forgetting and we've talked about icons and we've talked about who's alive and who is not alive and all those things and I, I think all of it can be summed up and we've talked about funerals you know and, and at funerals and at remembrances you know the 
the phrase that, that comes up time and time and time again is, you know, may their memory be eternal. And by that we mean, may they always be in the remembrance of God. May they be in the bosom of Abraham, as you said. And I think uh, in that sense, I think that encapsulates the whole conversation we've had that this life of staring into the face of the likeness of Christ, whether that's an icon of him or an icon of a saint uh, or an icon of a loved one <laughs> who may or may not yet be a saint um, is about the remembrance of God because God is the source of life and God is the source of love. And if we are in that, it, then, then we are alive. And if we're not, we're dead. I'm not striving to have the last word or anything. If anything, I don't want to have a last word, but your, your uh, uh, relinquishment, Jim, when you're talking about you know this anxiety or desire to make sure the word gets out about reader Lucian, uh, it makes me think about a few, at least a few of the saints, their stories. We have most recently Saint Jacob Hamatura, and then there's uh, Saints Nicholas, Irene, and Raphael, and then Saint Fanurios, who you know it, it points no one knew about or anything, and they just but they were made manifest, right? And so it's not squench, it's not squelchable, uh, not quenchable. So. Uh, God's will be done, you know, if it's, if it's meant to be, it will be, you know, and so glory to him. And I would put that out there to anybody listening. Um, I do my best each week to look at uh, the calendars from a number of different jurisdictions and other resources to try to make sure that the saints that I'm including on the program are not all coming from one sort of local tradition, uh, you know, I've, I've gone out of my way to try to explicitly bring in, in pre-schismatic Western saints and other things. Uh, you know, I'm now in the OCA, which is uh, Nick and, and Father Simeon are in the, the Antiochian. And so our calendars are a little different. And I try to look at all of them. Uh, if there are saints that are important to you and you listen to the show, do please let me know. Uh, and I will um, make it a point to try to make sure they get included. Obviously, we have to wait until their, their day comes around. So it might take months uh, for that to happen. But um, if there's somebody that you want us to focus on, we're happy to do that. Uh, I don't want the program to become focused on the saints of a, a specific local church by any means. With all that being said, um, I think it's only appropriate, Father Simeon, if you would close us with a benediction and a blessing. Very good. This is uh, a prayer that we say often and is especially appropriate since we are commemorating the presentation of our Lord and Saint Simeon the Elder. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Lord, now let us, thou thy servant, depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you, Father. Thank you, gentlemen. I, I, I'm sorry, I have to add. <laughs> you don't have to keep this in there, but uh, it's like when I learned that Simeon was, you know, some people say 200, 300 years old when that happened. It's like I, I can picture actors 
what do you think of it? It might have been very peaceful, you know, like we kind of hear it, but, uh, you know, through that filter.